Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Hi. I'm in for Joan. Good to be with you, Tori Ryder, at the same text and chat numbers where you can usually reach Joan. And uh, there is so much going on. Uh, well, let's just get right to it. If you want to join me with your thoughts, you can text or call 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. First off, Mitch McConnell. What do you, yesterday, yesterday it was McConnell and Johnson and uh, the high level presidential folks trying to get something together for uh, national aid to Ukraine, international aid to Ukraine, um, Israel, a little something on the, something for the budget, just, just trying to get themselves together. And I can't imagine that that went very well since the very next day, as you're doing whatever you're doing, you get the news that Mitch McConnell is not going to stay on in his Senate lead role past November. This guy has been in his position for over 40 years, I think, something like that. And it's the longest time that anyone has led the Senate for his party. What's your thought behind that? You think he just got disgusted and said, I cannot work with these people anymore. Even I, even I, the master manipulator. And believe me, I've got no love in my heart for Mitch McConnell. None. But weirdly, I used to, th- I used to think, maybe you used to think he was a man of his word. And then January 6th happened. And, and, and he is another one of these Republicans in D.C. who is living proof that you can exist with no spine at all. None. I've often said that if if we're looking at research in quadriplegia, Mitch McConnell, excellent, excellent demonstrator that you can get along with no spine at all should give people hope. Look, here's a man walking, talking, leading the uh, Republicans in the Senate with no spine at all. I make bad joke. But you know what I mean, right? He was disgusted. He was appalled. He was, oh, well, it's what Trump wants. And let's flip that. Let's let's flip that around a little bit. Because all of this stuff that's coming out of Johnson's quote, close quote, leadership role in Congress is is so heavily influenced by Donald Trump that I don't even know why they're sitting in their seats in the Congress anyway. What, what's the House there for if Donald Trump, who isn't even elected to anything at the moment, can just say, no, no, I'd rather you didn't do that. And they'll, oh, whoops, sorry, boss. Why do we have that branch of government? So that's my theory. Mitch McConnell just thought this is this is a waste of my old age. He's what eighty two years old. I mean, I'm sure he's not going to go quietly into that good night. I'm sure he's going to take some seats on some corporate boards, maybe do a little volunteering for electing. I don't know what he's going to do, but I'll tell you what he's not going to do is deal with the crazy House of Representatives anymore. I think he's just washed his hands of them. He's had enough. 
But what do you make of it? I mean, here's just another example of how the Republicans writ large are completely in thrall to Donald Trump, who I'd prefer to write small. Just, was it today, yesterday? It was announced that a candidate for Senate in Montana, Rosendale, current member of the House, one of the eight who voted to dump Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy's been on the warpath against him ever since. He was so proud of himself, got rid of Kevin McCarthy, feeling good. And guess what? Trump endorses a primary opponent, Tim Sheehy, to go against Tester for Senate in Montana. And so, Rosendale, no, one week he announced for Senate. He's in the race one week, and Trump doesn't like him. He said, oh, sorry, boss, sorry. I'll bow out now. It's a wonder that any of these Republicans can stand up straight at all. They're just on their knees for Donald Trump all the time. This can't be good for their marriages. And can you imagine, like, your spouse, your husband, your wife, your inter-whatever, you, you come home and imagine sitting across the dinner table and having your spouse know that you've had your spine removed and have caved and have lived another day at the office on your knees for Donald Trump. How does that go down with, with the spaghetti and meatballs on any given night? I'm thinking not too well. How do they look their kids in the eye? We're sorry, young'uns. Daddy does rule this house. That's that's the right wing way. Unless Donald Trump says, hey, I mean, I'm surprised Donald Trump's not insisting on feudal rights. You remember what those are? Remember feudal rights? That was when the Lord of the Manor could sleep with anybody on his estate just because. I'm surprised. Well, again, look at some of the congressional spouses. Maybe they're not to his taste, but. I'd worry. I'd worry if I were a Republican in the House with a particularly attractive, tall, blonde, Slavic-looking wife. I'd back away from that office real fast because, you know, if Donald Trump wants your wife, he'll probably get her. Because you won't say no. And you're the, the lord of your household. Is there nothing? Is there nothing these people will not do for their lord and master? I mean, God bless CNN, who gave uh, our our very own downstate congressman a job. And then Lynn Cheney, uh, Liz Cheney. Why, why am I having trouble here? She's she's she got out while the getting was good, not of her own volition, but she's she's done well. But these other folks, these other folks, they're just they're like they're like remember the Monty Python and the Holy Grail movie. Do you remember the knight who has all his limbs chopped off one after another and they keep saying to him, well, would you like to, to surrender? Nope, nope, just a flesh wound. That's these Republican Congress people. They're hopping around on stumps. Nope, nope, we're fine. We do whatever Donald Trump tells us to and, and we're independent. We're fine. We're fine. We're just fine. It's the strangest it's the strangest 
It's like it is. It's like a cult. It's a cult. I mean, think about it. Think about any religious cult that you can think of, and let's do a little comparison. Let's do a little comparison in a second between Donald Trump and your standard wear a saffron robe, hand out literature at the airport and live on rice and coconut milk cult. Let's just do that in a second, shall we? I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito. We are live local progressive WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tory Ryder. I am Tori Ryder with you in for Joan today. Joan will be back tomorrow, just taking a personal day. And we're asking your theories, your theories about why McConnell is giving notice that he will quasi-retire from leading the Senate now. Also, how is being a Republican now like being in a cult? I will tell you my theories in just a moment. And again... Kudos to the Republicans who have backed away, backed away from the blazing dumpster fire that is their party. Like Kinsinger, for example. Let's begin with, let's see, some texts. We'll start with some texts. Uh, It's an I'm too old to lead. I think he was pressured by the MAGA to prove that Biden, according to them, is too old. Oh, sacrificial lamb, maybe. Uh, Let's see here. Yes, agreed. There is literally no need for the Republican Party, unless you're a white supremacist, because they cater to Trump's whims, who isn't an elected official. He is their mob boss. You know, here's the problem with that analogy. A mob boss actually has some power, real power, like life and death power. What does Trump have? An invitation to Mar-a-Lago? Big deal. Let's go to Brad. From I'm trying to get the right. I've got a multiple multiplicity of mice here. Brad from Elk Grove Village. Welcome. You're on WCPT. You were. Thank you for having taking my call. You were speaking about women at the dinner table in like red states, and I I lived in Arizona for seven years until 2016, and I came to the theory that, you know, a lot of women who were involved with these macho men, good old boys, good for nothing, good old boys, um, I think they became like them, like some cats that have become like dogs, <laughs> and I mean, what I mean is they, it's sort of like they acquiesce because can you imagine the the uh, the hell they have to go through if they disagree? Yeah, and yeah, I can't imagine. I, just, I, I can't imagine how they do it. I, I don't know, except that there must be some kind of underground railroad for disaffected Republican women going straight out of the red states because it's unlivable. It's unsurvivable. You have no control over your body. You have no control over really anything. I'm surprised these guys don't demand the right to, to walk into the polling booth and, and supervise their wives' votes. Thank you for calling. Yes, what? Okay, so how is... How is 
Donald Trump's Republican Party like a cult? Well, let's think about this. In a cult, you are told that if you do not follow the supreme leader and try to leave, you are basically going to hell, whatever the version of hell is. Now, obviously, going to be a commentator on CNN is some Republicans' vision of hell, but not most of us. I think we would say that's a pretty good gig. And and um, Liz Cheney's going to be all right. She's got more money than God. She's got a book deal. She can speak. She, she doesn't need their stinking office. She can just go home. But for the most part, in a cult, they throw you out and then you have no friends. That's what happens to people who leave cults. They feel like they will have no friends. So... That's one thing. Second thing is, in, the, in, in a cult, they control your media. They control, you're not allowed to watch certain things, you're not allowed to call certain people, you're not allowed to be on the internet. It's kind of like that in Trump's Republican Party. You're only allowed to watch, like, what, Newsmax and read the Epoch Times and all kinds of flat earth publications. So... There's that. They control the media that you consume. And if you watch other media, you're considered a traitor. What? You watched a former Republican on CNN? Now, mind you, the Democrats, it's different. Like, I pride myself on being, and you probably pride yourself on looking at a variety of media sources. Because you want to know what everybody thinks. But not in Trump's Republican Party. Because it's a cult. What else? What other qualities are there cult-like? Oh, you don't uh, you don't get to sleep when you want to. They deprive you of sleep, which now you're going to say, how is the Republican Party depriving people of sleep? If you watch Tucker Carlson for five minutes, you can't sleep. There's just something so clearly off about the man and all of these people. That's the other thing. There's all the doom scrolling about how how bad for you science is. And how endangered America is if we don't all immediately become right-wing Christian evangelists. And you wouldn't sleep thinking that the whole country is on its way to hell immediately. And you better stay awake because you'll miss the second coming if you take a nap. So, again, like a cult. I'm just saying this explains a lot if you think about how cults work. Love bombing. That's another thing they do when you make your way into a cult. Just look at Tim Scott's face when they welcomed him back into the Trump cult. Look how happy he was to be praised, even a backhanded praise. They want to be loved. They want to be welcomed. It's a cult. That's what it is. And that is why, among other reasons... That is why you have an entire Congress who lives its. They should. You know what? You 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 know what? When they give out when they campaign for stuff, and you can get mouse pads with the you know make America great again, and you can get T-shirts and you can get those red horrible red ball caps. You know what they ought to be giving out, or at least selling knee pads. That's what they ought to give you for the MAGA Republicans. Here, you're going to need these. Let's go to Kenneth. Hey, Kenneth, welcome. You're on WCPT. Oh, Tori. (laughs) 
as you well know, I'm your Facebook friend in Tennessee. Uh, hello. Hello. But you want to know something? What? I couldn't disagree with you more. You're allowed. And we can, I know, and you've got an open forum, and I don't mean to get political, but I told you I was going to listen to you today, and I'm listening to you down here in Tennessee. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't disagree with you more on almost every single thing. That's fair. <laughs> I, I would you also, Kenneth. I'm telling you, dear. I, I that we down here don't think the same way that you do up there. Well, as I say, it's dangerous to think the other way down there. So since I have you on the phone, let me take advantage of this and ask you, what do you make of McConnell's resignation? Well, not resigning, oh, well, resigning. He's too old. Yeah, listen, he should have retired years ago. OK, he's over the hill. Really? When you know your time is... Oh, come on. He ran a very when tight ship. When you're t- uh, look, when I, you're, I oh, detest yeah, yeah, the man, okay? okay? I I really detest I the man, okay. but I had to Corey, admire... I had to admire him. Admire him for what he managed to accomplish. He ran a very tight ship. Let's give the man his due. It's all politics, but go ahead. Well, no, I just, I just want to say that he ran a tight ship. He got his legislation passed. I don't think so. Listen... You you know you you know who you're talking to, okay? <laughs> you you know who you're talking to, and I love you to bits, but you're talking to a strong Trump supporter, okay? And we're we're down here like that. We're dug in. We're dug in in, in Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Florida. We're dug in, honey. We just are. It makes no sense to me that the Republican Party, amongst whom I counted many friends for years, and who to me represented, and the don't you ever, and don't you ever, and don't you ever defend me Gosh. because you don't like my politics? No, never, 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 never. So, but, go right ahead. oh well, thank you, since it's my show. Um, <laughs> gosh, thanks. Um, what I wanted to say about that was it, the Republican Party to me, and, and I've never been a Republican unless I took a ballot in a primary to screw with the mainstream Republicans, which I've done a time or two. But the thing that I loved about my friends who were Republicans is they had a vision of the greater good and how to achieve it that was very much rooted in individual responsibility and then voluntary community responsibility for those who were less fortunate. But what I've seen from from your guy is this sort of mean-spirited grinding into the mud of anyone who is different or can't succeed in the same okay. way. And that okay. grieves okay. me. Okay. Okay. And I can understand you don't like his personality, and I can understand that uh, 100%. But who who is the alternative? Listen, I'm, uh, if you want to take a bet on this, I'm going to Vegas in the next few months anyway. So if you want to take a bet on this, I will. <laughs> and I don't know if you're a betting woman or not. Okay. But I, I will tell you, my, my Biden, idea of gambling. That Biden, that my, Biden is uh, after, after the convention in Chicago, okay, Biden is not going to be up there. Okay. Well, we'll see. So who do you put up there? Gavin Newsom? I don't, I mean, I don't think sake. I don't think that's I, I don't know where you're getting your numbers from, but I respectfully disagree. And I will tell you that I get all of the gambling I need just by being in this business. It's been a pleasure to speak <laughs> with just, you. I was just joshing with Call you. Call me when you get back from Vegas and have a safe trip. And thanks for calling today. Um, let's see here. 
What are we? I'm looking. I'm looking at. See, you're welcome. Even if you think I'm full of it, you can. You can be heard. Let's go to. Oh gosh, I'm trying to read here. Moscow, Mitch. Oh really? Really? How do you mean that, Moscow, Mitch? I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not. Somehow that's not computing. Joe writes. Uh, your friend in Tennessee saying we're dogging down here. Uh, sounds like I can't. I cannot make head nor tail of this comment. I'm sorry. Um, try again. <laughs> I will read it if if you send it. I will read it. Um, let's see here quickly, very quickly. Jim, go ahead. Uh, Trump delivered a sermon at the religious group on Saturday. Some stilted sermon that he gave. I would defy Joe Biden, who's a devout Catholic. I would be interested if he did the same, if he had a religious right or he was appealing to the religious people, because I'm certain that Joe Biden is more religious than Trump ever was. I think that I think that that, he doesn't use that. He doesn't use that rhetoric. He He believes in the separation of church and state. You're right. Thank you for calling and making that point. Um, Okay, how is it like a cult? I've got more ways that it could be a cult. Don't make me make a fast food joke. Do not. I've eaten plenty, plenty of healthy meals amongst my friends, the Republicans. Although I will I will confess this to you. When I'm asked to attend a fundraising event, and since I count among my friends, uh, Republicans of the old school for the most part, but a couple of folks who are Trump supporters, I, I will tell you this, the, the Democrats have a lot of beer, but they also have food. With the Republicans, there are a lot of beautiful flowers when I go to their events and an open bar, and you can't find anything to eat for love nor money. I don't know. I guess that's how they keep that lovely, slim Melania figure. But I, who like to eat, and and I suggest any Trump Republican who likes to go eat, just say you're a Democrat so you can go to a fundraiser because the food is so much better. So much better. Um, I also want to thank Alex behind the board today because he's uh, taking your calls when you do call, when you do text. Um, please feel free to join us, 773-763-WCPT. Let's see. Cults. This came in. Jim Jones, David Koresh, Marshall, Applewhite. Where did these leaders eventually influence their followers? Yeah, well, that's kind of my point. The Kool-Aid, the Kool-Aid, the cliff, waiting for the space people to come and get. When you get judges like that guy in uh, Alabama who declare that a, a fertilized egg in a test tube has the same rights as your kid in preschool, it's another world we're living in. Even Trump, even Trump didn't go there. But, but. That's that's the thrall that you have amongst the Congress, the Republicans in Congress in particular. And and I find it extremely disturbing, this whole idea that to work cooperatively is a sin. I will cooperate with all kinds of people if the greater good is served. And and if you want to know, as as we close out this half hour, what I think is really the tragedy of all of this, including poor old Mitch McConnell. And he did know how to work collaboratively when he needed to. And these new Congress people, they just don't.
WCPT Live Local and Progressives, the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Turi with you, writer in for Joan. And we will meet somebody who has a really cool nonprofit based in Uptown in just a moment on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. And podcaster. Don't forget podcaster. If you want to know what I sound like when I'm not talking politics, which is why I have lovely friends whose politics is part of the reason I have lovely friends whose politics diverge widely from mine. Uh, You can just Google my name and podcast and uh, you'll get a whole other side of yours truly that has nothing to do with politics because people are bigger and more interesting and more diverse than their political opinions. Maybe bad to admit it around here, but... You know, you don't sit down and breakfast at breakfast, talk politics, lunch, talk politics, call your friends on the phone, talk politics. I mean, really, you need a break. So that's what the podcast is for. Now, speaking of talking politics, you're about to meet a woman who shoots politics. And I don't mean with a gun. I mean with a camera. She is the proprietor of the Chicago Center for Photojournalism. I passed by it a few times because I live just a few blocks away. She's got a fascinating history. She's got a really interesting storefront. And then when you wander in, let's find out what awaits you. Denise Keim, well, am I pronouncing it right? It's Keim, like the furrier, right? Yes, exactly. Ah, we're, Thank you so much for getting it right. Well, I went to school with possibly a relative of yours who was also a kime of the furrier. But you can be oh, one God. of a kime around here. We'll let you be yes. the only kime. So tell me about the Center for Photojournalism and tell me about what it's like to be uh, shooting photos in Chicago now. Just talk to me a little bit about what you're doing, how you got here and what the center is like. Oh, my gosh. So we opened up a storefront uh, center. It's 800 square feet. Uh, The location is right on 1226 West Wilson in Uptown, one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the city. Right across from Truman College, if you want to sort of geolocate that. The red line is that was just renovated uh, is two blocks away. We have a firehouse a block away, a coffee shop right next door, and literally we're on the street. And it was the main goal of mine to bring uh, photojournalism, fine art, and bring it back down to the streets so that everybody has access to it. They don't have to know to go. Yeah, it's really um, cool. When we walk by your windows, which we do all the time, um, you have some fascinating books in the windows. I hadn't realized what a discipline photojournalism really is. You just kind of consume it with your with your newspaper or your website, and you may not stop to think about what it really means to make a study and make a life's work in photojournalism until you see Denise's place. You want to talk about how you set that up to attract people and maybe a little of that? Yes, definitely. So um, uh, during the lockdown, when we were all, uh, you know, reevaluating our lives, if you will, um, I kept walking past this storefront, but I'm really paying homage. I've been a street photographer for 30 years I taught at higher ed uh, for 15 years photography, but I lived in New York City from 1993 to 2000. 
And uh, Alex Harsley started the 4th Street Photo Gallery in 1974 for minority photographers. It was a storefront on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I got to spend six years with him in the storefront. And I watched Robert Frank come in. I watched the gods of photography walk in the door. And it was just this little tiny storefront that you could only put in about 20 photographs a show, if that. And I watched him build community and support us lone wolf photographers, you know, where really it's a it's a solo effort, even though there's a, a lot of us out there, you know, it's our our vision, our time. And the saying goes, you can't get a double page spread from your hotel room. Photojournalists have to be there uh, to witness. So um, I'm really paying homage to him. And in particular, I focused on photojournalism because, as you know, uh, they're getting wiped out across the board. Um, The Sun-Times wiped out all the photojournalists, the Pulitzer Prize-winning departments. Um, There's very few of them are being supported like they used to um, years ago. So let me pause you there and ask you a couple questions. Um, First question would be, how would someone who wants to make a living as a photojournalist do that? And then the second question is, and, and they're kind of interwoven, what what happens when everybody has a camera in his or her phone? Everyone's walking around with a camera. You don't need to develop anything. You don't need a studio or a darkroom. How, how does that change the equation? Very much so. All of the points you're bringing up are exactly why I'm doing this, because everybody's a photographer today and nobody's trained, right? We're trained on Photoshop. I mean, we're trained on Instagram and social media to make photo opportunities. But what I'm bringing to light again um, is to re-educate people how to use this tool that everybody has in, in their pocket, right? And it's really the code of ethics, non-biased, fact-based, respectful, value-add, visual storytelling. Um, and because everybody is photographing today and so few even know that there's a code of ethics that photojournalists uh, aspire to and follow and practice religiously, you know, that it is non-biased. We are bearing witness. We do, you know, there is this code of ethics around how to use this very powerful tool. All right. Let's talk more about that. What, what must you do? What should you do? What shouldn't you do? What's verboten? Um, so for instance, uh, Facebook and Instagram tend to be all photo opportunities. They're made up. They're not a moment. Um, I'll give you an example. One of my colleagues got, uh, was photographing a politician, and he was showing up at a children's cancer hospital. And the politician got out of his car and just wanted to take his picture in front of the children's hospital and get back in his car and leave, and he would be able to write an article that he was at the children's hospital. That's a photo opportunity. The photojournalist, who was very experienced, just put his hands in his pocket and said, if you're here to see the children, let's go see the children, right? Uh So... That would be a photo opportunity where they were trying to set something up that didn't necessarily happen well, in real time. You just flagged something very interesting. Is because and, and you're educating me right now. 
it seemed to me always that the photographers never really verbally interacted with the subject. But what you're telling me is that there's now a verbal interaction between the the photojournalist and the politician. And essentially, uh, he or she is saying to the politician, I'm not going to take your picture and call it a visit to the thing. Either you're going to do it or I'm going to keep my camera away from you. Correct. And, Correct. and is, w- w- is that new or has that always? No. That's what the best of them aspire to be, right? Uh-huh. Um, so I can't say that all uh, photojournalists follow this code of ethics, right? Um, but that is the, the, the best. And with digital now, um, you know, there's so many ways to manipulate the image to give yourself an agenda or uh, how do I say this? Today, there's more PR people in journalism than there are photojournalists. Well, yeah, and they tell and they, they fired, as you pointed out, the photojournalists and they tell the PR people or sometimes the staff, just just do it yourselves. We get that in uh, journalism. I am not a journalist. I'm a talk show host and an entertainer, but friends of mine in journalism are getting the same thing. This whole citizen journalism horse wash. Hold on a second because I want to talk to you about the classes and I want to talk to you about the training and I also want to talk to you about these editing tools and how they're being appropriately and not appropriately used in photojournalism, which let's just make it very clear, is very different than just taking pretty pictures. So stand by. Yes. You're listening to Denise Kime with me, Tory Writer, in for Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tory Writer. Joan's back tomorrow. I am here with you today. The number, which you'll be able to use in a little bit, Right now we are um, with Denise um, Denise Keim, who is the owner, proprietor of the, uh, I'm looking at the, I want to get the name right, Chicago Center for Photojournalism. She will rejoin us in just a second. The number you're going to want for texting and calling later is 773-763-WCPT. So, Denise, before we stepped away from the mic for a moment, I wanted to ask you about the difference between pretty pictures and photojournalism and, and the teaching that you're doing there and about some of the editing techniques that people are using that can detract from the ethical presentation of uh, journalism in photography. Okay, yeah, so the center, I, I teach uh, photojournalism and street photography. That's it. They kind of go hand in hand, um, meaning uh, we all start out as street photographers and it, it lends itself to photojournalism and vice versa. So I teach those two classes. It's sort of street has no rules and photojournalism has the code of ethics. Um, and so it's really important to me. And my main goal here is to start teaching the youth in the neighborhood, in the high schools, after school programs, because they've been brought up on opinionated news, right? There's no such thing as not opinionated news anymore. And I, I really want to 
capture that audience since they will be using this visual storytelling tool in their pocket uh, the rest of their lives. Well, I, I have and, to I have to raise my hand here and say there are some pretty good unbiased news sources. I think the Associated Press does a good job. I think public uh, radio does a pretty good job. I, I, I agree with you that there is now a preponderance of news opinion swirling around, but there, but there are still people doing it right. And and I I just have to, in defense of my friends who actually practice online and print journalism, I, I need to say that. But I, I do take your point that um, kids have not been taught to distinguish between opinion and fact-based news, and, and that is key. So how do you approach this with them? Um, through a lineage of knowledge and past great photojournalists, through example. And then we go out on field trips, and I've been on the street 30 years talking to people and doing portraits. So I help the, the new New, most of them are already photographers, but they're looking to expand their vision and storytelling abilities. So I te- take them onto the street, and we go to different neighborhoods and communities and document um, things that are happening in Chicago. And as you know, there's always something happening in Chicago. Absolutely. Um, and I help them engage and uh, be respectful of the, the people that they are um, communicating with. Um, so. I like that. So it works. You teach them that it's basically two two ways. They're looking at someone who's possibly looking right back at them. And, and there's a sure. kind of an agreement there when that happens, I think, in the best in the best photographs that I've seen. So then since you've pointed out that there's a lot going on in Chicago, I have to ask you about the upcoming Democratic convention. What what are you looking forward to? What are you worried about? What are you teaching in regard to this huge political Cirque du Soleil that is coming to our town? Well, um, we also have, I have about six exhibitions a a year, and we're on our sixth show. Right now I have uh, a student exhibition up of the uh, 13 students that have taken uh, my classes. It's a really uh, interesting uh, group of photographs. We actually have Palestinians on the wall with Israelis on the wall, and we all... Uh, we're able to get along and show a vision of compassion for the human condition, regardless of where uh, it's at. So, but that we are going to have a convention show. Um, we're collecting images. As you know, uh, we've had, what, 14 Republican conventions and about 11 Democratic conventions in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um And we always go back to 1968 because of the protests in the Vietnam War and Hubert Humphrey and, um, but I'm going to open it up and start with Eisenhower in 1952 and cover all the way up to 1996, which was the last convention here with uh, Clinton. Wow. So it, it will be a group show and it will be our history and the people that documented those conventions, both inside the convention, which is very different than outside of the convention. Yes, so that's to your true. Point, there are two different places. We are working on getting uh, press 
passes to get into the convention physically because there's there's two different dynamics. You know, outside are all the people on their soapboxes that all have something to say. That's one part of it. And then inside is a whole different group of people that have a different agenda. So uh, we will be covering all of those bases collectively. So this is exciting because you're making it clear to the folks you're educating that they're going to be in two completely different milieu and they have to really think about how they want to interact in each of those spaces, I would imagine. Um, what are the young people that you're teaching and the folks with an interest in street photography and, and photojournalism, what, what are their goals for their photographs? Do they want to have personal websites? Do they want to be published by bigger websites? Do they, do they aim for a sh- being part of a show at your center? What are some of their goals? Uh, how to make a living as a photojournalist, which is very hard to do today. If I kept a list of how many people have walked in this door since I opened in April that were either studied journalism, uh, were photojournalists, Young and old, it it doesn't matter. So many people, and now they're doing marketing or PR or construction or building houses, but very few of them are able to make a living as a journalist or a photojournalist today. Well, that begs the question then. What, What do you say to these people who have hopes and aspirations? Do you tell them this needs to be a passion project? If you want to make a living at it, you should have a day job? Or what do you say to them? And we're trying to figure that out as we reinvent ourselves because the the old the old paradigm of uh, working for Newsweek or working for the Chicago Tribune for 25 years is is over. You know, um, National Geographic just published their last publication. It's really um, so, difficult. I I mean, I know so many photographers who have closed up shop basically they're selling their archives they're figuring out you know can they teach what can they do it's at the same time that your center is a is a bright spot in the photo um scene in chicago it must also feel a little bit like a dying ember or no are you able to keep yourself motivated all the time yeah, there's always there's always room for more photographs, right? And photojournalism has a really long shelf life. So sometimes, like I was at a panel in New York City, and it was when the Iraq War was going on, and there's three photographers that flew back from Iraq to uh, work with this seminar of people, of photographers, and I got to ask the last question on how their images were being used with the publications that were sending them there. Mm -hmm. And they said that even Newsweek was actually changing the captions on their photographs. Mm. Newsweek was calling them up asking for photographs of people celebrating. Wow. And their response to that was, this is back how long ago? They were asking for certain imagery to put in their publications. And they said that they needed access to the information, to history, so they didn't, they let it go because photojournalism has a long shelf life and eventually the real story will come out. 
Let me get this straight. These photographers who normally would have bridled at the idea that someone was going to change the the photograph caption or ask them for a specific photograph, they let those photo editors have their way because they figured eventually the full story, the truth will come out no matter what caption. Are you sure that was right? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. They didn't want to lose access because then they couldn't be there to bear witness to what's going on. Well, it's a catch-22. Yes, it sounds like a real moral challenge. It's a very moral challenge, and we're still there today. But the young people that are coming in, I have a a gentleman from Venezuela. He's been here 10 years. He wants to be a photojournalist. He's a graphic designer now. His work is so beautiful, and his heart is... So, so it doesn't, the, the want and the desire to do this kind of work isn't any dimmer than it was before. It's just we have to figure out a better way to, to support this, right? Um, to be able to support the journalists that are going out there in the world and risking their lives. I mean, look at what's happening in Gaza. How many photojournalists and journalists have been killed? Let's, I mean, let's, let's circle back to something um, that you've said about ethics and, and the code of what you do and don't do with a picture. With AI and all kinds of editing tools, how can an expert like yourself be sure that you're really seeing some arguable version of the truth? And what about people who say, well, if I edit it this way, it tells more of the truth. That's just me as as an photojournalist emphasizing what I feel is the truth of the story. And how is that different than selectively cropping a picture? Yeah, selectively cropping a picture is, is, a, is an issue because what are you leaving out, right? Right. But there, like some of the awards that have been given out the last many years for world press photographers, they actually have to see the file, the digital file. Um, I'm not going to name names, but a few years ago, a photographer combined two images to make it a better image. One image had half the half the frame was incredible and the other half wasn't happening. So they put two images together and presented it and they won the award. But once they Xeroxed it or however they digitally checked the file, they realized that it was two images spliced together and he then lost the award. Wow. So it's it's a serious just like life, there's some very talented, morally, you know, uh, conscious people, and then there's then there's not. Um, yeah, well, there. I think you've pretty well articulated it. There are people who play by the rules, and people who say, "What would it be if someone had said, I, I have combined two images, and then that would be art and not photojournalism?" Is there a space? for art that also tells a narrative like that? Well, it's so interesting. There's uh, the famous Afghan woman uh, photographed by Steve McCurry. Yeah. Yeah. So he called himself a photojournalist, worked for all the major publications, but over the time, people went back through the work and realized that he did set some of the imagery up. And so he really had to take a conscious look at how he to present the images in the publications in the past, and he decided to change his, his title from photojournalist to visual storyteller. 
Ah. That that says a lot about what is demanded of people now and and what you could get away with before there were all kinds of sleuths walking around going, and that doesn't quite look like it just happened that way. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's presented as historic or I still, I'm going to tell you a little story because this will make sense in a second. I still remember a friend of mine who was in university studying to be um, an anthropological archaeologist, some version of this. And she used to go bananas every time people would go into a history museum and look at, you know, the pioneer room with the spinning wheel. Yeah. And the, yeah. And she used to lose her mind. She said, nobody span, spun anything next to a fireplace. You'd all go up and smoke. And I was like... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Little balls of wool. Yeah. Yeah. They always show you spinning by the fire and it's not the way it happened. And I'm thinking there must be now almost a um, what what are those folks who call themselves the Internet sleuths that go around Bellingcat? There must be like a Bellingcat for photographers now that goes around and says, no, nobody is spinning by the fire or whatever the photojournalistic equivalent is. Is there such a thing, a group that just looks at photographs and says this cannot have happened? Yes, con- yes, collectively. So Edward Curtis was a photographer that photographed American Indians. At one point or another, most um, American Indians had one of his photographs on their wall. He was just the the like he was the greatest, um, uh, you know, uh, Indian photographer out there. But later we found out that he had a whole war chest of war bonnets and. Um, no. He would get them dressed up. No. And so when historians went through the images, they realized, why is he wearing a Sioux war bonnet? And we're not, this isn't that group. Oh, my. So people started finding in his photographs that they were all uh, orchestrated. Oh, and boy. if they didn't look Indian enough, he made them look more Indian. Oh, boy. Now, does it take away from his prolific work that he did? No, but it also it puts it into a different category. Absolutely. We're going to hold you there. Give me the address one more time and your website so people can find you and learn more. It is the Chicago Center for Photojournalism.com, and we are at 1226 West Wilson Avenue, right by Truman College in Uptown Chicago. Thank you so much for making time. I'll stick my head in and say hi one of these days. As long oh, as you better come in and I, see us. I yeah. think I will. I think I will. Thanks again, Denise. Welcome okay, back to Chicago. Belatedly, all success to you. It's just Thank about you. three o'clock. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito, live local and and progressive. Yeah, we are WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Just about five minutes after three o'clock, I am Tori Ryder, in for Joan. It's spelled with U T U R I Ryder, like the rental truck. And you can find me on all the most of the socials, um, and also the podcast. Just Google my name and podcast. But it's always fun to come in and be here for Joan, especially because sometimes you just you just get to do one for the fun of it. This past weekend. I was invited to see a show that I, honest to Pete, I thought, how am I going to relate to this at all? It's a show at the Otherworld Theater 
It's on the north side of Chicago, near Wrigley Field, I would say. And it's a little storefront theater. And the show was a musical parody of Twilight, the movie. And I thought, what the heck do I know about Twilight? I've never, it's for kids. I've never seen it. I've never read it. I have no idea. So we went there not expecting much. And then we were delighted. It felt a lot like the first time I saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It just, it was a little bit transgressive. It played a little bit with gender, a lot. It played a lot with gender. Um, I then made myself watch the movie and I was fascinated by how closely it paralleled the movie and yet had so much more fun than the movie. So being as this is up to me when I'm in here, we invited... Um, we invited Brian Rasmussen. He is the writer, composer, music director of this show. It's called Twi Hard. And it's a fabulous parody. And I can't, I can't say enough things about it if you just want to have some fun. Brian, welcome. You're on WCPT. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I, I could not believe th- that I enjoyed it at all. I like walked out of there with the spousal unit going, did you expect to have any fun? Nope, I didn't expect it. Did you have fun? I, I had fun. Um, and, and one of my favorite things about it was the way that it really played with gender. Talk a little bit about the show, because I understand that before it was written, you were not familiar with the franchise either. That is correct. Um, so I have been um, working at Otherworld Theater, and uh, Tiffany Keen Schaefer, who is um, the founder of Otherworld, uh, approached me in August and asked if I had wanted, if I wanted to compose for um, the musical of Twihard, and I, of course, said yes. But um, I had only ever seen the movie like once, and I was, you know, familiar with the memes and had. You know, seen the movie once, was a little familiar with it, but I was definitely not into all of the deep fandom things. So in the process of writing the show, I have now become very familiar with all of um, the fan community, which um, uh, Tiffany has been able to open my eyes to. And specifically, one of the big things was... um, just how the amount of fervor that the the fans have for the material and especially fan fiction and all of these fun things that we decided to explore in the course of the parody. And, and you make fun of your own musical, too. You're like, we're only going as far as 2008. Don't expect too much of this, which I, I found <laughs> charming. One thing that was interesting to me when I looked at the musical and I, I read a little bit about it, I'm sorry, the the movie, uh, and read a little bit about it and thought a little bit about it. There was a time, and it wasn't very long ago, and it's still going on, especially in this political climate, where you're just supposed to say no to sex. No to sex, no to sex. And what it it occurred to me appealed about the Twilight um, movie was that the whole thing is an exercise in sexual frustration, if you stop to think about it. Um, For those of you who aren't familiar, it's your typical uh, vampire saga where... Um, you know, the young, beautiful young virgin, if she succumbs, becomes a vampire. And they play on this um, with this whole idea of if you practice self-control, you save her life. And if you actually have sex with her, she's over. So that whole tension, you guys have some big fun with that. You want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Um, so one of the um, interesting things um that I really love that we've explored um, in this was 
um, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, the concept of the fan fiction, yes. which is where, um, when, well, I'm sure you, you remember which moment we're talking about, but um, specifically, there's a lot of um, fan fiction, which um, uh, is where fans of a franchise will write their own uh, spin-offs or versions of the story that involves kind of wish fulfillment of what they would want to see. And something that I love about fan fiction is it's a place for a lot of marginalized groups to create works where they feel seen, whereas in a lot of, specifically a lot of LGBTQ plus people maybe wouldn't get to see themselves in the Twilight Saga. But now they get to see but not now. not just not just a little bit of same gender. Well, gender fluid, same gender, gender fluid. It's not really clear who's who's doing what to whom. Mm-hmm. But there's there's certainly the leather community gets. You'll pardon my terrible pun. It's licks in, and uh, <laughs> and then there is much wig wearing, wig donning, wig removing clothing. I mean, nobody is is unclothed, and yet you say a lot about, uh, as you put it, wish fulfillment. How how did you cast a show where so many people get to do so much risque with their clothes on? Um, well, uh, something that Tiffany and I um, spent a long time uh, talking about was specifically casting um, not only just the entire show, because we have a lot of demands of the actors like we have. We want them to be singing. We want this person to be able to tap dance. We want this person to have the right chemistry. But specifically when it, came, when it comes to the roles, um, don't want to give too much away, but the roles that sort of really explore um, gender fluidity and sexuality, we really wanted to um, find actors that were able to not only embody um, um, something a little bit different than what we might usually expect to see, but also actors that specifically brought something uh, special and an element of themselves and their own comedic style to the uh, to the show. And so, um, the actors that we ended up getting, we um, and we're very happy they said yes. Um, <laughs> Uh, we um, we were really thrilled. It was specifically for, the, for those roles. It was kind of an instant. They're the one. Well, let, let's <laughs> let, let, with, again. I don't want to give too much away, but yeah. one of the things that was interesting was since since it's uh, cast in such a way that people play multiple roles. There are roles that some people play where they are interested in same gender heat and then they have to they have to generate uh, heterosexual heat and it really takes um, I, I think shines a light on this whole idea that you can only play what you are uh, because as an audience member when they generate even in a campy way um, same gender attraction it plays well even if that same uh, actor is later playing a role where they generate um, cross gender attraction would would you say that's true did you have to work at that how did that come to be um so um well i'm primarily the music director so um i think a lot of that credit can go to tiffany our director who um i remember in our casting um something we spoke about so much was 
uh, chemistry between actors. So we did a lot of, it was very important to us that we uh, read um, actors next to each other to see what they were like on stage to make sure they were able to switch off on that. And something we noticed was um, um, people that really stuck out to us were people who were able to really turn on a dime and be able to do something completely different with it. Cause we would say, um, they would do a scene and then we'd ask, okay, we love that. Um, can you do it? And then ask for it to be done in a completely different way. And, um, a lot of them were able to give us exactly that. And with tap dancing. Hold that thought with more. Yeah, and I think we're going to maybe, I don't know if we can get Tiffany on the phone. I hear she's standing by, but I do I do want to talk a little bit about the music, which was your strong suit. Um, yeah. It seems like everybody had a strong suit and then a strong garter belt and then a strong lab coat and then a strong, we'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito, Live Local Progressive, WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. We'll be back in a moment to our conversation with Brian Rasmussen, music director, creator of the fun parody of the Twilight franchise called Twy Hard that's currently running at the Otherworld Theater. I think they've just extended it. Uh, a note for you, if you're a mortgage holder, if your mortgage interest rate starts with a 7 you need to do what some folks are doing. Call Team Hawkberg, your trusted local lender. Interest rates have dropped since peaking in October. Fred, I'm sorry, let me try that again. Fed, Fed Chairman Powell anticipates three rate drops this year. If you secured a 30-year fixed mortgage after June of 2022, your rate starts with a 7. Team Hawkberg has contacted all their borrowers with rates in the 7s and are preparing them to refinance when rates drop. So if your lender has contacted you because they're either out of business or lazy, you need to call Team Hochberg now at 855-563-2843 to prepare to refinance into a lower rate. If you want to work with a lender who will monitor your mortgage and contact you when rates drop, call Team Hochberg 855-563-2843 or visit 56david.com. Team Hochberg helped thousands of WCPT listeners, but they can't help if you don't call. 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. That number again is 855-563-2843 or visit 56david.com. Lower.com equal housing lender and MLS 1124061. Let's get to Brian Rasmussen, music director, composer, writer of the Twy Hard parody, um, which is a little Rocky Horror-esque, I think. Um, and I wanna, wanted to talk to you a little bit about, what was it I was going to talk to you about just before the... <laughs> oh, the music. Yes, the music. How could I have forgotten? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how you worked the music into the show, which really has a lot of fun songs sung by some great voices. And I just can't help thinking Rocky Horror with that same kind of clever singability. How, how did you find the places to do all of these fun songs? Oh, well, thank you so much for that, Tori. Um, and um, the first thing we did, uh, Tiffany and I, was we went through the script and 
pinpointed where we wanted songs to be, um, what uh, what emotional beats we thought uh, were deserving of music. There's the old adage that in musical theater that um, when the emotion is so strong that you can't that you can't speak anymore, then you have to sing. Um, and then when you can't sing anymore, it's too strong. You have to dance. Is the old adage. Uh, so we we. So we pinpointed the the moments when we thought, um, like, oh, that's where the emotion's strong. That's when we have to have a song. Um, but also, as far as comedy goes, where would it be hilarious to have a song? Well, my, my <laughs> vote is for the light motif of the the Mullins, which is the the parody <laughs> the parody vampire family of the Collins, if I've got that right. Um, yes. And, and yes, they're kind of Adams Family esque. And you you really work that so that people know that you're going to just make merciless fun of them and their behavior. Um, but what's your yeah. vote for for the funniest song in the in, in the play? Oh, the funniest one. Yes. Oh gosh, um, I gotta say probably our hunter song, our villain song. Um, oh, sing a little, one? just sing a little bit. Oh. Cause I'm a hunter and I'm a hunter. I'm a tracker. Yes, it's true. Uh, so that's the that was a, that was actually later in the process. We we came to a point when we said, "Oh, we should have a villain song." And then uh, we said, "Wouldn't it be hilarious if the villain had a tap number?" It was great. I mean, how have you ever been <laughs> oh, to you. a show where the villain tap dances? Also, you may, and again, this is back to this whole morality horsewash where where girls are not, uh, they're always supposed to lust after the bad boy, but they're never supposedly uh, supposed to give in to the bad boy. That's the old trope that we've been peddled ever since they first started sticking silent movies up on screen. Oh, I want him, but I shouldn't have yeah. him. But I want him, but he's so bad. Oh, but he's right. All of that. And so yeah. you really work that with a number of the skin of a killer, which in the movie, he, the, the guy actually has the... Proper body parts to go. Hey, but it's the skin of a killer, and of course you work that trope because she's like, "I want the skin of a killer. I, I'm in love with. It. I want to fondle. I want to do all kinds of, of of really raunchy things to the skin of a killer." And you just kind of it blows your mind. It really does. Plus, there's nothing that a little glitter won't enhance on the stage. I, Absolutely, I have to say a little bit. So. When you um, think about, I, I noticed there are banners at your theater, um, banners encouraging trans pride, gay pride, straight, welcoming environment. How did you and the theater envision this um, as a presentation for the whole community? Straight, trans, gay, in between, gender fluid. Did, was that a part of your consciousness when you put the show together or it just organically came out of having the most fun with the script? Um, I, I would say that it came pretty organically. Um, I will say that uh, for Tiffany and I, um, inclusivity is uh, very important to both of us. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that really kind of naturally um, came about in the way that we went about things. Um, uh, diversity in casting was important to us. Um, so we have... Um, um, people from many different walks of life um, in our cast, and um, we view that as um, 
as really a strength because uh, people coming from different backgrounds bring so uh, so many different ideas and experiences to a performance, um, and that's um, we both view that as a very net positive for a show, um, and consequently makes it approachable to many more people. I think you're right. I was there on Saturday night. The audience was totally into it. And I want to give you um, extra points because, and I'm glad nobody will know who this is. There was a person behind me that if I had to listen to that laugh one more hour, I thought I might turn around and just throw something at them. (laughs) Just Have you ever had one of those people next to you in the theater that you just think, oh, Lord, someone has to listen to this 24 hours. Someone lives with this person. I'm going to do my impersonation of this. The worst laugh in the world. (laughs) That's what they did. Like the whole show. And I thought to myself, if I can enjoy a show with someone behind me going, (laughs) then I, I really must like this show. And then the other thing was, and I hope this person is not listening. Somewhere in the audience, somewhere out there, there was somebody who who was a walking testament to why Americans are compulsive about showering. Um, so <clears throat> there, there was somebody where you just wanted to say, you know, maybe it's medical, but here, have have some... Have some deodorant. So if I if I loved it with all of that going on as distraction, then I know that other people will, will love it too. What are you hearing back from the community, excluding the person who laughs like that? I hope you never hear from them. <laughs> but um, what are you hearing from the community? Well, we are getting so much positive feedback from so many people. Uh, something... Specifically, um, within the Twilight uh, fan community online, we're seeing a huge response. Um, I think our biggest um, uptick in sales was when there was a very prominent um, Twilight fan page on Facebook. Um, Somebody posted about that there, and then the next day we saw tickets just go skyrocket. I'm so glad to hear that because it's really – Chicago has this very serious theater scene, and we – you know, does some comedy, and of course, but there's almost a brick wall in Chicago between the comedy scene and the serious theater scene. And it was just delightful to see a small theater space. How many? How many seats? What thirty in that space? Maybe forty. Uh, it's about fifty-five. It feels intimate. It really does. And to see a small theater audience respond so enthusiastically that it feels like it's 200 people loving it, then I I think that you've got it all. You're doing it all right. Plus, it was tempting to take the fake money home with me as a souvenir, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Um, you had, you had a, I hate to keep going back to this Rocky Hirsch, I think, but you had all these great props that people could get into. So that was fun. Um, and, and what is the plan for the show going forward? Well, uh, going forward, we have, um, I think you mentioned before, we have extended. So we have extended through March 24th. Um, so tickets are still available at otherworldtheater.org. Um, and then uh, Tiffany and I, um, who I co-wrote the show with, um, we are in talks with um, about a possible um, 
possibly opening at different theaters or licensing. All of that is very up in the air at the moment, so we can't really say for sure. But um, we're very um, we're very optimistic given the very good um, very uh, good response we've gotten so far. And did you do any research to make sure you wouldn't get in trouble with the actual Twilight? people just to make sure that you I mean they're legit you can do parody but but was there any concern about parodying such a legally powerful franchise yes so um, things that we we had to look into is um, if there are any names that are copyrighted we couldn't use uh, thus why the names are a little bit different um, and then I believe I don't remember the exact number, but I believe there's um, like a certain percentage of the work has to be different or parody with that. So um, a lot of that is kind of vague legally, but that's just to ensure that you aren't just doing the the movie on stage and calling it a parody and making sure you are actually. Oh, I think you're totally safe here. You are completely, (laughs) totally safe. No one is going to think that you are actually doing, although you do point out some things that, you know, there's a lot of, is it Reinhard Ale? What is that? What is that beer that that is drunk throughout the entire movie that you guys managed to pile up? Oh, goodness. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, other Um, than that, there's not a huge similarity. Truly, yeah. There's there's quite a bit there's quite a bit um, different things going on. So um, even for uh, fans of the movie that know every line, there's going to be new exciting things for you to see. Well, I'm really glad that it's doing so well, and I will tell people again: just go to Otherworld Theater. That's T R E, not E R. Uh, dot org, or just Google Twihard, which is a pretty hilarious title. And please thank your co-creator for for putting this together. And uh, now. Now I have a whole insight into a whole universe, as it were, that I knew nothing about before. Brian, thanks for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. That's Brian Rasmussen. He is the writer, musical director, musical creator, composer of Twihard, which is a parody of the Twilight franchise, and it is running through the end of March, just about at the uh, Otherworld Theater on the north side. So, you know what? It's fun to just, to just be on the radio and introduce you to things I think you may enjoy, and I think you will enjoy this. I'm Tori Ryder for Joan Esposito on Live Local and Progressive WCPT. Joan Esposito, Live Local and Progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tori Ryder. It is 3.31. I am Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. And uh, yes, you can text us at 773-763-WCPT. And thank you for your texts, including the ones that use obscenity and tell me to leave. Those are important. I need to read those because so far, so far, it's never happened that a talk show host went, oh, what? You don't like the show? Well, I guess I'll just leave now. But it could happen. There's a first time for everything, so you must let me know. When you go to a cultural event or you open up a catalog for the arts or culture, do you sometimes see a note or hear an announcement about whose land you are sitting on? about the tribal history of the land where we sit and live and work and have dinner. And do you ever think to yourself, okay, well, what 
what does that really mean? That just, you know, it sounds like a bunch of words. Because if that's what you think, that's what I think too. I think, okay, fine. So what are you going to do about that? You can stand up there on the stage and you can say, this is the historic land. Well, good. So what are you going to do about that next other than make the announcement? The Prairie Band of Potawatomi Nation is actually doing something about that. So I'd like to introduce you to their chairman, Joseph Zeke Rupnick. He has legislation in the works um, that would help the Prairie Band of the Potawatomi Nation reclaim its stolen land. Welcome, Mr. Rupnick. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So do you hear those announcements too? And do you roll your eyes and go, seriously, you're going to make another one of these announcements? Or what do you think when you hear these announcements? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, and it kind of depends on the sincerity of the person that is making that. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, you know people are sincere when they do acknowledge this, this was stolen Native American land, and they would like to pay homage uh, to those folks that occupied that land, as in our case, for thousands of years. So talk a little bit about, and we're not going to be able to keep you for long, long, because your signal is terrible, but talk a little bit about this legislation that you have put forward and what it would do and and why now. We have two pieces of legislation. Uh, The first one, we have a bill filed in uh, the U.S. Congress that um, actually recognizes that plan that we have in Illinois as a reservation. Um, based on uh, our treaty, two treaties actually, uh, Treaty of 1829, Treaty of Great Machine, and Chicago signed in 1832, they called out two sections of the land for who was my grandfather, four generations of the Congress kept in that land for him or him and his descendants to occupy forever. Uh, when we were displaced at gunpoint and moved to Kansas during the Indian removal period, uh, he came down in 1850 to make sure that the nation was settled in. I'm, I'm going to pause you there for a second because, Mr. Rupnick, your signal is so, so difficult that we're having trouble hearing you. We're going to try connecting with you again and see if it goes any better, okay? Because we can't hear you. Uh, uh, We'll try again. Thank you. That's uh, Joseph Zeke Rupnick. He is the uh, chairman of the Potawatomi Nation, and they are trying to get back the land that uh, was theirs. And, and was promised, as you've been hearing him say, uh, to them in perpetuity, negotiated, and then um, we didn't honor that commitment. So we'll work on reconnecting with him. If not, we will talk about other things and get back to him at another point. So Alex is working on that. And while I have that happening, I should also tell you, looking forward, uh, we're expecting to speak with Adele Waldman. You might have read her uh piece in the New York Times, and she's got a new book coming called Help Wanted, and she did a very insightful job of explaining why companies that are running ads and claiming that they are offering all kinds of benefits to their employees are busily engaged in not offering those benefits to employees and the means by which they are doing it. Are we going to give up on Mr. Rupnick for now? 
can't reconnect. Okay, that's not, we'll try another time. Um, and sometimes people are busy and it, it doesn't happen as you hope. So we will, but we will definitely make a point of trying to reach out to him at some future, at some future time. And if you are interested, you can actually look up a little bit of this story for yourselves. Um, they have filed legislation that in here in Illinois would give a substantial piece of property back to the Potawatomi Band. As someone who grew up in Kansas, um, there is a Potawatomi reservation. Um, at least it was there when I was growing up. And it was a place where the land was beautiful, but you got the sense that it was just a fraction of the historical territory of these people. And so with all of the conversation that is happening now about dispossessed people, this seems to be a good moment uh, for exploring what that could mean to indigenous cultures of the United States. I want to turn back um, because the story is continuing to grow and develop. I want to turn back a little bit to the, um, I, you can't actually call it a resignation, can you? Um, the, I guess you could say he's resigning, his exiting, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, who will be exiting as Senate GOP leader come November. Uh, and I'm wondering, because we didn't touch on this when we first talked about it at the, at the top of the show, I'm wondering if you have any idea whether or not um, McConnell's exit from leadership in the Senate is is going to leave a situation as chaotic in the Senate as what we're seeing in the House. It, it strikes me that the Senate has a little bit more uh, gravitas, decorum, uh, collegiality, and yet post January sixth. Um, I lost I lost some of my faith in that. And I'm wondering what you think will come next if you had a crystal ball post McConnell, uh, because weirdly, although most political experts uh, are predicting that the Democrats will lose the House in the next election, um, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll gain, Democrats will take over the House, I misspoke, in the next election. Many pundits are predicting that the Senate will not, will not remain in Democratic hands. And, and there are a lot of uh, very closely contested races and races that we may lose altogether. Uh, Senator Sinema of Arizona is now going to run as an independent and she's being challenged and, um, uh, West Virginia, uh, also problematic since we've lost Joe Manchin. And uh, there's there's going to be a serious effort to unseat uh, Tester of Montana. I mean, the list goes on. So since the margin right now is so very slim, um, if the Democrats lose the U.S. Senate and if McConnell's not there, what do you predict lies in store? For Americans, and do you think it 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 focuses entirely? If you think, do you think it depends entirely on who's sitting in the White House? By the way, this is also big news story of the day that uh, President Biden is uh, undergoing his physical. Are you as sick and tired as I am of hearing that he is a, a, a doddering um, and and damaged? individual, intellectually, that one just drives me bananas. On the one hand, 
We all love to talk about, oh, Aunt Gladys, Uncle Charlie, sharp as a tack. And yet we make this assumption that because our president, who has never been quick with words, I mean, he's he's worked really hard to overcome a stammer, and he's always been... Uh, I wouldn't want to say poorly spoken, but he's no great orator. He's no Barack Obama. Is that really what we need? Does it really matter that much? And if someone isn't glib, does that really mean that they've lost their capacity? It seems to dovetail with this idea that some people have that what these are the two ludicrous things, I think, when people go looking for a candidate First of all, they love it if they're great speakers. Like, okay, well, that's a natural human function to to respond to someone who gives a compelling speech. But Biden's argument when he ran and was elected was, look, I'm not the most compelling speaker. You got a whole stage full of compelling speakers up here, but I get the job done. And I think he has completely delivered as promised. He has done what he promised he would do. And now... The American public wishes to move the goalposts and go, yeah, but you have to look slick while you do it, which is absurd. And then the other thing that people, oh, drives me crazy. Every election cycle, you get some reporter sticking a microphone in front of some guy going, I'm voting for him because he seems like the kind of guy I could relate to. I could sit down and have a burger with. Which is a version of I can fly the plane syndrome. I think you may have heard me talk about I can fly the plane syndrome. It's it's part of this idea that expertise is a bad thing. Yeah, I don't want a president who actually knows how to do stuff. I want a president who'd be fun to split an order of fries with. Like what what does that have to do with it? It's it's the it's this whole anti-academic, anti-intellectual. Um, pursuit we seem to be, a race we seem to be having, the race to the bottom. And and when we do it, we play right into Donald Trump's hands. Oh, coastal elites. And I can fly the plane syndrome is my way of summing this up. It's like, oh, I fly all the time. What What's to it? I fly for business. I fly, fly for pleasure. Well, what's to it? You, you get in, you go up, you come down. I could fly the plane. No, you can't. And no, you can't be president either because, well, actually, Donald Trump has just proven that that's kind of not right, hasn't he? You can be president. You just can't be a really good president if you don't know how to fly the plane. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito, WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tory Ryder. I am Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito. And if you ever want to hang out with me and not talk politics, uh, the podcast is a good place to do that. Just Google my name and podcast. That's T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R and podcast. And we, we can talk about things like whether you were willing to go out and enjoy the beautiful weather yesterday or whether you're just such a pessimist. You're like, I don't want to I don't want to get my hopes up. I don't want to go out when it's 78 degrees, knowing that in just a scant eight hours, I will be plunged back into Chicago winter. We can talk about stuff like that on the podcast, which we do. Other interesting um, 
other interesting thoughts from you, if you want to share them, Nikki Haley, what is she doing? What is her thought behind staying in the race? The Koch brothers withdrew their funding from her, so that had to be a big chunk of her money. But she's hanging in there. As you as you sit wherever you sit right now at work, in the car, um, don't text me from your car, please, if you're driving. What what do you think is behind Nikki Haley's decision to to hang in there in light of the the Michigan? What would you call what just happened to her in Michigan? Complete deflating of her hopes for some sort of reasonable showing? I mean, if you put a guinea pig, like, you know, a little guinea pig like you get from the pet store. If you put a little guinea pig in a in a zoo enclosure with, with a leopard, how long would you expect the guinea pig to be able to keep functioning? Nikki Haley is now the... the political equivalent of the guinea pig in with the leopard. And I'm not sure. And and more importantly, there's a little door in the enclosure with the guinea pig and the leopard that, that she could go out of. And yet, for some reason, she's hanging around the enclosure and, and saying to the leopard, na, 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 na. Like, what, what, is, what is the point? Now, several people have theories, one of which is that it's all about the convention where she's going to get to stand up there with her delegates and maybe take one last final savage punch at Donald Trump. Nikki Haley, by the way, in my opinion, was the the last gasp of a third party. Maybe you think she's waiting to be invited to some no labels. And here, here is another theory. Possibly Nikki Haley wants to demonstrate that the Republican Party, as as we all knew it, is no more. And that this is sort of her last attempt to show the change in the Republican Party, that they, they will take someone who would have been considered a standard bearer of the party for all of its life, really, until just a few years ago, and vilify her, reject her, defund her, well, she hasn't been defunded yet, just partially by the Koch brothers, just to demonstrate what a loss it is. At at this point, weirdly, it it almost seems like she's doing Joe Biden more good than she's doing herself amongst the independents and and the traditional Republicans. If they see how badly she's treated by the voters of what used to be their Republican Party, maybe they'll give up on their party altogether. What's your thinking? Phone number here is 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. Let's try one more time. We, we have uh, uh, Joseph Rupnik on the phone one more time. Joseph Zeke Rupnik, who is the uh, chairman of the Prairie Band of Pottawatomie Nation. Let's try one more time. Ta- talk a little bit about your effort to reclaim your land. Uh, okay, Ho- hopefully you can hear me a lot better this time. Um, we do have a bill filed in, in U.S. Congress that would recognize the land that we have in Illinois as a reservation. Um, that land there was uh, carved out by treaty in two different treaties, uh, Treaty of uh, 1829 
Prairie du Chien, and then finally the Treaty of Chicago. During that time, that was the Indian removal period, and um, most of the land was being ceded. However, Congress kept in those two uh, sections of land for who was my grandfather, four generations removed, uh, forever, and his descendants. Uh, when we were forcibly removed uh, out of Illinois to Kansas, um, he came down and visited us uh, probably around 1850 or so. And when he returned back to his cabin, um, the general land office of the state of Illinois had illegally sold his land and said that he abandoned it. And we have been fighting to reclaim that land for 170 years. What does the fight look like now, and how big is the parcel, the, the acreage? Where, where is it? How big is it? What, what does it look like now, and what's different now about your effort to reclaim this land? Well, uh, originally by treaty, um, since he was a chief, um, two sections of land, it was 640 acres of or 1,280 acres in total that was given to them or carved out. I shouldn't say given. That was carved out by Congress um, uh, for his actions. Um, it's uh, in DeKalb County uh, near the village of Shabana, about 60 miles west of Chicago. Um, there is a state park that is located there, and the state park and the village are named after him. Um, that is approximate size and, and the location of, of the land today. Wow. So now I, I want to be careful um, before I ask you to, to talk about your grandfather many times removed, because I know that amongst some uh, indigenous communities, speaking a name of someone who's not around is, is considered something that isn't done. Um, but I have read a little bit about him. You want to talk about him with or without using his name and how he looked after his people and um, what what happened to him when he came back and found that his land had been stolen? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think that he had some pretty good lobbyists uh, due in part to the actions that he had taken during the Black Hawk Wars. Um, at that time, Black Hawk had come to him asking him to join um, in that fight. Um, he, he was probably about 60 years old by then, been fighting all of his life. Um, lost uh, wives, lost uh, uh, children, didn't want to fight anymore, um, didn't see um, the point in it, and his focus was to make sure that the tribe survived. Um, so I think that, um, um, that with the help of the settlers, um, when Illinois was uh, becoming a state, um, making sure that they honored him for his actions because he did go and warn Sarah. Uh oh, we've lost the we. Unks as he could. I'm sorry, we're we're losing your signal again. I'm. Uh, we tried. I, th I think we're going to have to give it up. Um, but but you get a little sense of it. It's some um, land that that uh, is downstate west of the city, and uh, if we can fill in the story at some future point in some future way, we will. But uh, I would say that we are in a different time where, if you want to know, as I started out the half hour, 
If you want to know what difference all those announcements that you hear from stages and cultural events and reading and programs that you are sitting on or working on or living on historic indigenous land, what difference it makes? I think the fact that we are now more aware of our presence in this place as something really new and something that didn't come just out of the clear blue sky, that there there was a... A negotiation, there were agreements, there were wars, and there were promises broken that maybe that has caused enough of an evolution in awareness. That and then good lawyers that we may see this uh, change a little bit going further down the road. It, it will it will be interesting to see. Um, and now I guess we'll turn back to the whole Nikki Haley thing. I know some of you called and we didn't have a chance to get to you. So this would be a good time for you to do that. 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. What is your theory behind what Nikki Haley is up to now? And you can text me your thoughts if, if that's easier for you. I would be curious to know. I Here's my true confession. This is my true confession. And I've said this on the air before, but I'm going to say it again. Nobody scares me more in the upcoming election than Nikki Haley. When I actually thought that she might possibly, before the voting started, when I thought she might unseat Trump as the leading candidate, that really scared me. Because we do, in this country, have a love affair with youth. And she also is an expert. And I don't agree with just about anything she says. But, you know, she's just she's just fiery enough, juicy enough, use whatever adjective you like, that she actually scared the bejeepers out of me. And I'm... I'm I'm so glad that she's gotten pummeled. And I'll continue to say that I'm glad unless the worst happens and you know who actually is elected. WCPT, I'm Tory Ryder, in for Joan Esposito, live local and progressive. Why? Because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Tory Ryder. That's true. That's true. That's true. I'm all of those things. Um, and podcaster. So just Google the name. It'll all come up. I want to remind you, in case you could possibly forget, that Patty Vasquez will be driving you home today just after 5. So thank you uh, for keeping it here with Patty. She's always fun. I always learn something. And you'll feel similarly fond of her. If you're not normally in the habit of listening later, do it today and see if I'm not right. Now, speaking of people being right, uh, there is a, a woman who just gave the lie to a lot of big companies' allegations that they, they are fabulous places to work because everybody who works there gets benefits and their kids get benefits and their dog gets benefits and their house gets a new roof if it blows off, et cetera, et cetera. I exaggerate only slightly. She has a new book coming out. She just did a big piece in the New York Times. Her new book's called Help Wanted. Her name is Adele Waldman. And she really did a, a an excavation of what is really going on in the world of work and how companies are basically manipulating their air staff so that it looks better for them and it and it lives worse for the workers. Adele Waldman, welcome. You are on WCPT. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks so much for having me. So talk a little bit about what brought you into this particular store and where it was. And I don't think you're going to name it, although you can if you want to. Right. And, and what you found um, as far as the way that workers were being treated and manipulated. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I prefer not to name the store largely because... The practices I saw there, I've since learned, are so typical of other big box stores, other retail and um, food service chains. So I think I think sometimes when we have you know, when you have stories that focus on one store, it can give the impression that they're the bad guy and that the others who get less pressed are okay. And I think that can actually be harmful too. I I think that it's important to to note that this is the practices I'd like to describe are are pervasive. Um, so I. I took a job in 2018 at, at a big box store. I wanted to write, I'm a novelist, and I wanted to write a novel about the low-wage work environment. And um, what what I saw that really surprised me is the degree to which uh, my employer, like so many others I've learned, has made all store-level employees, or almost all store-level employees who aren't managers, part-time rather than full-time. And what that means is not that you just talk to your employer about how you want to work 15 hours a week and decide which 15 hours work with your schedule. It means you're basically on call 24-7 maybe um, and hoping to get whatever hours your employer decides to give you. And the, the people I worked with and myself, we had no control over how many hours we'd get. One week we might only get one four-hour shift. The next week there might be a lot to do, so we'd be asked to work 39 hours, never 40, because the employer did not want to pay overtime. Um, and this, it just made it impossible for my coworkers to plan ahead. If if they got a lot of work one week, they didn't know what to do with their paycheck. Like, should they use it to pay it on debt? Because everyone, of course, had debt living this way. Or should they save the money? Because what if the following week they only got four or eight hours and didn't have enough money for food? That does sound like a, a real did they, did people actually discuss this amongst themselves or is there a kind of shame around this that nobody wants to admit that they have debt and nobody wants to admit that they're food insecure How, how did you right. find out that this was the conversation that anyone was having That's such a good question I, I think that that it's such an issue in our society of people feeling that their poverty is their own fault. We're all programmed with that message that, that we're supposed to work hard and get ahead. And I think so many people do feel ashamed. I have to say it took, it took months. I was, I don't want to exaggerate what I did. I was only at the store for six months, but it worked often um, a very early shift, 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. And it did a lot of overnights. And in that time, I, I was very fortunate. I just became close to some of my coworkers, in part because of the early hours. And over time, we did start talking more about these issues um, in a way that I, I felt like if I had gone in as a journalist and just asked them these questions on day one, I'm not sure I would have learned what I learned over time. Um, but I think in, in the case of each coworker, things would come out. With, with some people, they had a place to live because they lived with parents or grandparents. Um, so rent wasn't the issue, but losing their health insurance because they hadn't been given enough hours um, to work. Like the health insurance was available at the company, but you had to meet a certain threshold for average hourly um, for, for your number of, of hours worked per week in a calendar year. 
And and that can work the other way, too. If you are eligible for subsidized health care and then you work too much, you can lose your government health care. I would imagine that was the flip side of that. So nobody knew how they would qualify for health care or if they could conceivably be dumped out of both programs. Right. The same with food stamps as well. There's so much uncertainty. And then... And all these programs, there's so much blame on the employer or on the employee of, like, the government programs are often, you know, when you go to renew your food stamps, you're told, why aren't you working more? And then, but you're begging your employer for more hours, and you don't get them. And meanwhile, um, the store I worked at, like all the other stores, they con- they're constantly hiring. They constantly have we're hiring signs. It's, it's not that they don't have the hours to give. They just prefer to dole them out this way because it gives them a like a pool of desperate workers who will come in on short notice. Um, so instead of hiring one full-time worker, they hire two or three part-time workers. So then let me ask you the obvious questions. Um, first of all, um, when you came in, did people regard you as a risk to their hours that they could be earning or have people just been so broken down and defeated by the system that nobody blamed you personally for showing up and taking hours that they might have reasonably felt could go to them? That's the first question. And the second question is, what about unions? Right. I say in the first question, I think you have it exactly right. I think by, by this point, my coworkers were so used to the system that they they didn't blame me or, or any other new hire personally. They just they didn't even blame our direct manager because it wasn't wasn't up to him or her. It 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 came from corporate and um, and most of the people I worked with were sort of contrary to the stereotype of you know low wage workers um, quitting jobs all the time and being unreliable. I have to say like my group of coworkers um, for, had all been there for years. Um, I started with a, another person, and we, um, and in the six months I was there, no one quit until I did. This was not a high turnover situation, um, which I think speaks to their loyalty and, and skills and what they brought to the company, not that they got much in return. Or it could be that they're uh, desperate and there's no other jobs, I mean, jobs right. around. So, well, there weren't. Exactly. There weren't better options available either. And our particular employer was sort of known as a slightly better employer. And honestly, once 20 years ago, according to people who worked there, it was a better employer. Um, Ah. And it still paid an hourly wage a little bit higher than other retailers in the area. And that was one reason that my coworkers felt loyal to it, because the alternative was going someplace else, starting at the bottom, making minimum wage instead of making a dollar or two more than minimum wage. Um, so okay, was, so hold that kind of thought. Tri- hold that thought because you've explained that part. I want to get to the union part in just a second. And, uh, oh, I have so many questions for you. Stand by. This is Adele Waldman. She is a writer, novelist. She wrote a really blazing opinion piece for the New York Times about why companies get away with or how it comes to pass that there are stores full of people who would love to be working uh, regular hours, more hours, and they're deprived of that opportunity by these employers. More from her in just a moment on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. 414, I am Turi Ryder. We're 45 minutes away from Patty Vasquez. We'll drive you home so you have an opportunity to uh, to hear Patty in just a little while. Right now, you're hearing Adele Waldman. She is uh, She was just about to write a novel about uh, part-time 
set with part-time, featuring part-time workers. She took a job at a big retailer for six months working, I believe you've said in your article, unloading trucks in the middle of the night. Is that right, Adele Waldman? Right, right. I was on the team um, who would come in early to unload the trucks of new merchandise that would arrive at the store frequently. And the idea was we would unload the truck um, and unpack the boxes before customers um, before the store opened to customers. Okay. So we came in at 4 a.m. often. Sometimes we'd start at midnight if we had a lot. I'm sorry, go ahead. Did, did they tell you this is going to be like five-truck day, a two-truck day, a one-truck day, or you had no idea what was waiting for you when you came in? Um, we would sometimes know that things were heating up and getting busy, so we might be asked to do an overnights rather than coming at 4 a.m. We'd come in at midnight, and we'd get some notice. You know, We might be asked, to do it the next day. I found that kind of intolerable, um, and I realized that speaks to my, my privilege. I, you know, the first time I was asked to, to come in at midnight on short notice, I was like, what? I thought 4 a.m. was early enough, but I realized my coworkers were grateful for the, the extra hours, and they were very willing to deal with the disruption in exchange for those four extra hours. Um, so I tried to adapt to to it the way they did, but I, I came away with so much respect for them, but also obviously so so much anger that they were asked to do this and they, that they they had no choice but to say yes, because getting the hours in the work was better than not getting it. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the logical answer to some of this, which is unionizing. What, what did you hear any talk of unionizing? I realize since you did this in 2018, we've seen a, a wave in, in union activity. Amazon is still struggling with that warehouse in New York, but right. Starbucks, several other um, retailers have experienced um, unionizing efforts. Was Did anybody talk about this while you were there in 2018? It's interesting, not with the fervor I would have hoped. Um, and I think that has changed. I mean, I think that is changing, and I think that's that's terrific, and we just need more of it. But I um, I can't say – I think that my coworkers often felt so beaten down, they didn't really see anything being likely to change. And I think in the past, when there had been union organizers around the store, nothing had ever come of it. Um, They'd never gotten enough interest, and the company would always would respond by calling a meeting, buying pizza for the staff, and talking about why unions were a terrible idea. and And so they ne- it never gained traction. So I think I think that the environment, as, as you know, is is changing. So I hope I hope that will change. But I think that especially in 2018, um, people felt hopeless. Well, they did have a very anti-labor Department of Labor at that point. So that exactly. much, much makes sense. Talk about the the lives that people are able to live when they have no control over their work, over their work schedule. Uh, one week they work 20 hours, one week they work four. I'm, I'm guessing you worked amongst people who were trying to raise children or trying to go to school to get a better um, career out of their lives. What were some of the uh, hopes and, and the challenges that you heard about firsthand while you were working this job? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just, it was so challenging for people. It, it, um, I mean, one thing, so many of my coworkers didn't have cars, and we live in a, a rural area, the, the store, it's uh, sort of um, the foothills of the Catskill Mountains, and people would walk to work. It's all right in the summer. Um, it's not great because the, the, there's a windy highway where people are, are driving fast, um, 
walking along the shoulders of the road in the middle of the night, it's it's really not great in the rain and the snow. Um, so I think for a lot of people, their dream was a car, and um, and but it was so difficult to secure an auto loan. The people who were in a slightly better position were people who were able to live with parents or grandparents because their parents or grandparents had been able to acquire assets in a time when the economy was just more fair and more just when they'd worked union jobs and were able to afford a decent middle-class life. And and you saw the difference. If those people were a little better off than people who didn't who didn't have that um, and who were trying to make rent month to month, and there was just so much stress and anxiety. And, and people did whatever side jobs they could. So a lot of a lot of gig work, um, working as movers. Um, People who had cars worked as Uber drivers. Um, people did a lot of selling stuff on eBay. You know, just, people were very creative in finding ways to supplement their income, but it was it required a lot of ingenuity and just a degree of stress and insecurity that was heartbreaking and and um, unconscionable. Well, honestly. I'm I'm wondering if some of the programs where um, colleges are now moving their coursework. Um, online and sometimes out of real time has been helpful to people who want additional training so that they can get. I mean, I guess the two ways to attack this are organizing the workforce or giving people an opportunity to move up the ladder to a different position in the workforce so that they don't need to have one of these jobs in the first place. Uh, Were there people you worked amongst who were actively trying to change their qualifications? There were, there were, but then, but there were people who weren't able to for various reasons, and I, I guess sometimes I hesitate with. The, I think we can be too quick to go to education as a solution. I think education is wonderful for for people who that's what they want to do. But I also think if we have an economy that relies on people doing all sorts of jobs, you know, for for people who shop at these stores. They need to be stocked by people. I, I think that we also have an obligation to treat the workers who have these jobs fairly, that it's it's not enough for, for the ones who might have the time and the inclination to do something else, to well, have a way out. I, I may have miscommunicated here. I'm thinking in terms of trade training, like, you know, we need, right, right. We need phlebotomists, we need you know, all kinds of things that are not necessarily a degree in art history here. Uh, but sure, I, but sure. I take your Absolutely. point, the idea that somehow getting a degree in English literature is going to help you get out of working in a warehouse house for target is is a bizarre concept um and it won't help you by the way save your money uh as as someone with a degree in english literature i can i can speak to this um so uh, then let's yes i'm sorry go ahead where i tend to go and maybe this sounds overly ambitious and pie in the sky is back to the fair labor standards act of 1938 and 1940 which set the 40-hour work week at the time the idea was to keep workers from being asked to work excessive hours and not be paid overtime for working over 40 hours a week. But I, I think that a federal legislative solution would go a long way, that if, if large employers, not a small coffee shop or small restaurant that has a legitimate case that it can't afford to hire additional full-time workers, but large employers, if they were on the hook for, for giving their workers the choice between working full-time and part-time, that they're the ones with the deep pockets. And if you're going to hire, you know, if, if a huge employer like Walmart, the largest private employer with 1.6 million employees, if, if it's going to hire a new person, 
I think you can afford to offer them 40 hours a week. I think that what that does is it creates a fair playing field for all the retailers. So it's not as if the one that wants to do the right thing then has to face price competition from the others. There are some elegant ways they could do that. I mean, they could say if you have X amount of your workforce working less than 20 hours a week, then you are required to offer those folks, you know, X percentage of your workers that you're then required to offer them a set 20 hours a week or 40 hours a week or there are all kinds of elegant ways that this could be done without setting people against each other in sort of a a Romans and Lions kind of scenario. So, yeah, I think that, that you're wise to point out as I read your article and listen to you now, I can't help but thinking how little things have changed since Nickel and Dime came out. I'm right. trying to remember who the author of it. It's just uh, not. Barbara Ehrenreich. Thank you. The the She was left before left was cool. Um, she sure. wrote this beautiful piece about people who work these kinds of jobs that you're describing. And um, it sounds like very little has changed. I'm sure you've read the book. Did, did you notice yeah. that anything had changed? No. I mean, if anything, I felt what I saw were things changing for the worse. And some of that was, again, I was in retail, and retail has been um, affected by the rise of online retail. And, you know, I think... In my mind, it's I kind of I think it's important to separate that it's not necessarily about like one employer being evil or punitive. There is a race to the bottom. They're all competing um, with the online retailers and and competing with each other. So I mean, it's one of the reasons I like uh, a legislative solution because it just creates an even playing field. But I think that so that that it's that's something that has. Um, only gotten worse since Barbara Ehrenreich wrote that book, and, and things were bad enough then. But the competition with a, a certain very ruthless online retailer has not helped. Yes, well, we. Um, I always regret having to push buy on that real retailer. I, right. I, I, well, I, I think we all. It's it's a guilty thing. There's nobody who goes great. I'll order it from huge. We'll deliver this at four in the morning for you, company. Without thinking, exactly. is there some way that I could actually obtain this without spending two days of my working life finding it? And the answer is sometimes no. So, yeah, I, I, I am mea culpa. Let's um, talk a little bit about um, when you finished your time in this place. Um, and also, I meant to ask you, um, since you, you were talking about what's changed and what hasn't, what about AI? Are we going to start seeing robots unlo- unloading these trucks and stocking these shelves? And are people worried that their jobs are going to go away altogether? Well, you know what I think is ironic? I think that oftentimes the threat of robots is used to scare workers and, to, and also to scare the public into, into thinking that workers can't be paid more. Um, I actually think because workers are paid so little, there's been there hasn't been as much incentive for corporations to develop more advanced technologies because it's so cheap to hire people in this, in this part-time way without benefits. Um, and that, that, that I think it's actually not such a viable threat. The company I was working, the store I was working for, I think they were always contemplating were there ways to automate that were cost effective. And they were, I think, 
often deciding no, that, that it's actually really complicated. When you think of how complicated it is to find what you want when well, you're in a gigantic big box store. You realize, though, that you just sort of made a case for managers. of Like, we have to treat you this way because if you get too expensive, then we'll get robots. That That's their argument in all of this, which is horrifying to think well, about. I do. I think so, but I just think it's it's maybe not as scary as we've been told that it is. That that I think that there's this idea that if we ask for any more pay, then we're just going to drive the jobs, you know, to to automation. I actually think to automate a lot of a lot of jobs would be extremely expensive and would re- require like a great deal of work. Like I don't think you're going to get robots putting items away in big box stores where, you know, customers misplace things. It's not as if things are exactly in their right place. It just kind of requires a human to do this. And I think this this fear of, like, being told that if, you know, if you demand better conditions, the job will just go to a robot, I think that it, it sort of simplifies the reality, which is it would be, it would take some really advanced technology to do a lot of jobs that, that people do. Well, let's hope that you're right about that. So now, when you left... Did you tell your coworkers who you really were in your privileged real life or not? I did. I did. I started to feel like I really had to, to do that because I, I grew close to them. Um, I really, I keep saying, I really liked them. And I felt like that there was, we had a lot of fun together and I was starting to feel like there was something important I wasn't telling them. And I, I told them the, it was the day of the, the midterm elections in 2018. And we did something we'd never done before, but we went out for drinks after voting and going out for drinks for my coworkers was very rare. Um, because, because they don't the have the money point. for starters. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And a big thing was that I said I would pay, and that's how they started to realize that I might have more more access. But we went someplace very basic for happy hour, and over drinks, I said I said I'd buy a drink for anyone who voted, and um, and then I told them, and you know they couldn't believe it. Someone looked up on their phone and saw that I had written a previous book, and they were just shocked. But they're also very excited and have been really really supportive. Um, do you still see any of them? I do. Oh, that's nice. I bet you they're really cheering for this. This is a novel, but it features people who do this kind of work, right? Exactly, exactly. It's the, you know, it's fictionalized and the characters are, are fictional, but I, the realities of the workplace are very much drawn from experience. And it, it kind of meant a lot to me to sort of run ideas by my coworkers and be, because they're, they have life experience that, you know, I want to think, does this sound right when I, you know, this is what I think are some of the major issues. Do you agree? And and they've been really just kind and generous and helpful. I've um, and they really all upset. and they all get a free book. I'll betcha. Exactly. Oh, good. I definitely do. So you've just met Adele Waldman. Um, you can look up her piece in The New York Times and her new book is called Help Wanted. It's out. It's not out yet. Will be out. It comes out on Tuesday. Ooh. Oh, my. Well, congratulations. Thank you so much. I will be reading it. I'm grateful for your work and your candor, and I hope that all of this makes a difference. Um, and, and what else can we do but work for things to get better? Thanks so much. Right, no, thanks so much. That's Adele it. Waldman. She is the author of Help Wanted comes out on Tuesday. You met her here in a moment. Illinois has a bill that's been proposed by Labor 
to help people coming to the end of life with a medically assisted exit. In a moment, you will meet someone who's doing groundbreaking work on this, and she's also a friend of mine. Her name is Dr. Jessica Nudick-Sitter, and you will get to talk to her or hear from her on WCPT Live Local and Progressive in a moment. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. 4.33, I am Tori Ryder, little bit less than a half an hour till Patty Vasquez comes to drive you home. In a moment, you get to meet uh, someone who is at the cutting edge, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that about a doctor, of uh, medically assisted end of life and palliative care and conversations about death. She takes it all on. You'll meet her in a second. I want to get to some of these texts that you have sent about um uh, the harsh, laborial life of working retail, how people are, are put upon by um, the the business owners. My daughter, this text came in, works retail. She has two weeks notice on schedule unless they change their minds. Can you imagine? Aha. Uh-huh. Jessica Nudick-Zitter, my friend. Dr. Zitter, welcome. You're on WCPT. <laughs> Hi. Well, hello. Can I nice just, to see you. It's nice to be seen, even over the phone. And may I first say, yeah. before we, we get to what Illinois is thinking about, um, you wrote, and, and if uh, you wrote the book that I've given to more people than any other book. And people think I'm like oh. a Scientologist. I'm like, you got to buy this book. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's called Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. And it's about the conversations and your life learning uh, from being a give them everything doctor to a what is really best for the patient as they approach uh, the end of their time here. And well, you, me, you wrote, well, let me clarify. Yes. Can I say it's not what's best for them. It's what they think is best for them. Ah. So just to clarify, not me deciding what they think is what, what's best for them, but them deciding. That's a very good point. And that that dovetails nicely with what Illinois is considering, because at the moment we don't have a medical aid in dying um, uh, law, but we may. Um, And and that is in the process of being considered now. Um, Illinois legislators introduced this bill this month that would allow physicians to prescribe life ending drugs. Now, you wrote a piece about this very problem gosh, it must have been a couple of years ago, to talk about what doctors need to know about this. Could could you share a little of that thought? I, I Yes, I wrote that article in the New York Times about a, at, on the year anniversary of the California medical aid in dying um, uh, law that passed. So I, I think it, I'm embarrassed. I think it was 2016 that I wrote it because I believe it came to pass in 2015. And I was sort of really struggling with several aspects of it. Um, and I have to say what's been fascinating to me is the progression in my thinking over the past nine years since that or eight years since that article was written. Okay, so where were you then and where are you now? Well, then I was, you know, I I have for most of my career worked in a public hospital with patients who are, you know, have a lower socioeconomic status and don't necessarily get access to the things that many others of us do. For, for our and listeners, that would be the equivalent of a Van Cook County now Stroger. That, that's the equivalent of the hospital that you work in in California. Go right. on. Yes. That's right. That's right. right. So 
so, you know, many of my patients are patients of color, uh, patients who don't speak English, um, and people who don't necessarily, who often get the short end of the stick and, and don't know about a lot of new things that are coming along. So one of the things I was struggling with was, wait a minute, this is a really, well, maybe we should actually start to define what it is. Should I maybe do that quickly? Sure. Okay. Medical aid in dying is a bill that passed in California, and I think about 10 other states so far. I think Chicago or Illinois would be the 11th. Am I correct in saying that? We would be the 11th. Um, Yes, the 11th. Yes. And what it is, is a bill whereby a patient who is deemed by their physician to have less than six months to live is able to request legally a cocktail of medications from their physician that they would then administer to themselves. The physician would not administer it. There's no hospice involved. This has nothing to do with hospice. This is a decision between a patient and a physician uh, who would then be allowed to, uh, once they requested it, and they have to request it twice with a two-week waiting period. So people have to be compass mentis. They have to be able to use the medications. They're they're actually, it's a hard cocktail to put together. You have to, it's a whole slurry that has to be created by the patient. And so it's not an easy thing to do, but certain patients can qualify. And for those patients, they can then uh, end their lives and choose to end their lives when, when the time is right for them. Well, okay. So now I have to back up and ask, what if the life-ending condition leaves them physically unable to prepare this cocktail? Can they enlist the help of a sympathetic family member or do they have to be physically able to do this themselves? When a person requests this, for the most part, the kind of going assessment is that they need to be able to do it themselves. The truth, I believe, I don't do this kind of thing. So I don't know. I haven't been at any of these end-of-life experiences, but I know that families do get involved and help at times. But for the most part, patients are supposed to be able to administer this on their own and clearly demonstrate a desire that is, you know, long-standing and steadfast and not due to bias or, or, you know, imposed uh, desires from other family members that they really want this and have demonstrated that they understand the implications of taking these medications. So we're going to gloss over the fact that there are all kinds of of diseases that take a really long time that might, if someone knew that they were going to end up, you know, controlling their mobility with their, with a straw in their mouth with a puffer that they might, they might want to leave earlier if the law doesn't allow them to enlist the help of someone who could reasonably say, you know, this is what my father, mother, sister, brother wanted now. And the other thing is, of course, if someone else is assisting you, um, and you can't well communicate, how do they know if you haven't changed your mind? And that would also well, be a problem. The physicians and the team involved in, in allowing this to you know, happen probably, you know, they prescribe the medications. And for the most part, when it's done well, they are very involved in the experience. They're providing a lot of counseling. They're providing a lot of very, very good palliative care to the patient uh, so that the patient is getting every symptom as maximally and expertly managed as possible. And the truth is that we know that once patients actually do get put into the palliative care uh, channel, many of them decide that they don't want the medications anymore because when people actually make the initial request, a lot of the time, it's because they are afraid of suffering. People are afraid of being out of control. They're afraid of suffering. And when people's symptoms get managed, most people don't want to hasten their death. 
Now there are. Well, I'm going to pause you. you. I'm going to pause yeah. you for a moment, because, and then and then mm-hmm. we're going to do some business and then come back. But I have to say that yeah. it's important, and your book talks about this that you deputize someone who really will uh, take your known wishes into consideration. And I have a personal experience of this, where I was deputized on behalf of a friend of mine whose life was ending due to a. I mean, there's no good cancer. This particular cancer was awful as they all are i suppose and my my charge was to make sure she was not in pain and there was a much beloved child who was deeply connected to this parent who when i arrived at the at the hospital for the final round um said to me maybe if we withdrew the morphine she would still be able to talk to me right and i thought okay you know i have a job and so because I had this job, I was able to go to the care team and say, I'm, I'm here to make sure that my friend is not in pain. That is her main wish. That is her desire. That is why I've flown here. And so you're going to hear some people saying that they'd like maybe less pain medication so that maybe she could talk some more. But that's not what she wants. And the nurse said right. to me, OK, we've got it. We'll make sure she's not in pain. But it is important for people to be clear about what their priorities are. I mean, we, we, you and I both know somebody who didn't want to take any pain medication because they had a spiritual belief about what would happen if they left when they died and they didn't want to miss that because they felt that taking drugs would, would impair that experience that, that they were going to have. So it's really right. important that somebody does what you want. And I want to talk to you in just, just a second about... Um, the training that doctors need for all this, because that's that was part of your journey. And we'll take that up in just a moment, as well as what you have going on in the future. WCPT Joan Esposito show. I am Tori Ryder in for Joan. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author Tori Ryder. 445. It's Jones Show. Patty Vasquez will be in just after 5 o'clock. And with me now, Dr. Jessica Nudick-Zitter, author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. I recommend it to everyone. Also, you can find her in the Oscar-nominated short doc Extremis, which I believe is still up on Netflix. And if I'm not mistaken, she'll correct me. Yep. And you have, let's quickly get to your current project before we move back to Illinois and our our medically assisted uh, end of life uh, legislation that's before our house now. Um, Tell me what you're up to. Well, as you know, we make films that are sort of character driven and really narrative based and very, you know, virtual, not virtual, but verite to bring storytelling to the experience of end of life issues and and serious illness in America. And our current project is called The Chaplain of Oakland. And it is about an amazing woman who I've been working with for 13 years, an African-American 80-year-old chaplain um, who has shown me sort of a whole lot of things that I would not have figured out uh, myself about the experience of uh, patients of color in this country and how we bring implicit bias to the bedside. And uh, it's uh, hopefully going to be something that we get out there in the movie theaters and also bring into the halls of the hospital to try to teach uh, healthcare providers uh, about and cause reflection. That would be very helpful. When I was uh, looking after my girlfriend as she was dying, I I distributed your book to people in, um, I don't know what you call them, halfway houses. They're not 
they're people who can't go home and they can't afford or care. don't want yeah board mm-hmm. and care there you go thank you mm-hmm. and they were mm-hmm. unfamiliar with the book and when I handed it to them it was it was like a, a whole new world people oh, need to have these conversations about what's really involved now State Senator Linda Holmes is co-sponsoring the bill here in Illinois after she watched both of her parents die of cancer and uh, she remembers she said in an interview sitting at the side of her bed and she grabbed my arm and she's like Linda don't let them do anything so yeah what did she mean by that and what conversation should we be having about what does don't let them do anything and what does do everything what do those things mean and what do doctors need to know well as usual Tori you always get right down to the most important piece of it and end of life option act is this big sexy kind of scary thing that everyone wants to talk about and they want to know about but fundamentally, there are deeper and more important principles that we have to put front and center before we even talk about the End of Life Options Act. And you pulled one out, which is you need to have a really good and trusted person to stand in for you when you can no longer speak for yourself. And the second thing is you need to think about who you are and what's important to, to you about how you live your life all the way until the end. For some people, the important thing is to experience every heartbeat, as many heartbeats as possible, even if you're living with what you might even consider to be a poor quality of life, even if you're living in an intensive care unit on machines until you die. That might be the the feeling that some people have, and that's acceptable, and we can do that. We can keep people, and we do, alive on machines. Unfortunately, they're in a facility. Their arms are tied down, and they have a lot of medical problems on these machines. They, They can't speak, and they can't eat. Um, And people need to understand that because that's what that looks like. But if that's what people want, we will do that. We do that in hospitals all around this country all the time. And then there are many other people who say, no, quantity of life is not the most important thing to me. What's most important is that every day of my life is somewhat has some kind of quality that's acceptable. It doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not going to be running marathons necessarily, but I'm enjoying a piece of some, a, a spoonful of pudding, or I'm listening to my grandchild tell me a poem, or, you know, you just made me laugh. A spoonful of pudding and a spoonful of pudding. You can pull the freaking plug on me. That's it. If that's okay. the but highlight you know what, of my day. A spoon. But, but I will say, but, the week yeah. before he died, we got two pieces of flourless chocolate tort into my dad who enjoyed every bite of them. And then we announced that he was getting them because he was 90 years old and he'd had Alzheimer's at that point for like 10 years. And my sister swears that he looked at her and said, 90. That's a lifespan. And a week later, he was done. So, yeah, the pudding, though, that's bad. Give me something better than that. Better not be the pudding. But this is is important because it actually comes back to the end of life option. You know, one thing we need to understand, and I see this all the time in my work, is that as people age and as people become progressively ill and debilitated, their preferences and values change. So Uh, what might have been acceptable to you for a quality of life at the age of 50 may not. You may have a a, a sort of telling me? Are you telling me that I'm going to come to to a peaceful place where pudding makes it a good day? You're you're looking into your crystal ball and you're saying, (laughs) okay, one day this pudding is going to be the thing that keeps you going. All right. I'm making a note. You've got it. You've got, you know, I'll tell you a, a quick story. My, uh, my uncle uh, used to joke at all, you know, he was a sailor and he was a very rigorous guy. And he said, if I, he would have a back pain, oh my God, oh, throw me over the you know, overboard. I don't want to live with back pain. And then he became a quadriplegic and he's lived the last 40 years of his life as a quadriplegic. And, 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 and he has 
a wonderful life and he craves every single day of that life. And so I, he would never have thought that before this accident happened. And I think people really do adjust. What's okay, acceptable I'm writing to- it down now. Chocolate pudding. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Got it. Got it. What, okay. What do doctors need to know about, because I remember in your op-ed, you said that doctors, doctors are not trained for people making these kinds of requests. What's changed since we first started seeing these laws and now the way that the medical profession in general is approaching these kinds of requests? What's, what's changed a lot, Tori, over the last several weeks, we spoke eight, nine years ago on, on, on the radio and I wrote this article many years ago. With the, you know, continued presence of the palliative care movement, which only really started in 2008, where there is a focus on really, really attending to what's important for people, really communicating and asking and being curious. And we never did that before. We just assumed everyone wanted to be treated to the max. And now we really talk to people, especially as they get sicker. And a lot of times people start to say, okay, I don't want you to continue to intervene on me with the full court press. And so this ongoing sort of acceptance of conversations, of the importance of conversations about patients changing preferences and values over time, that is what's, I think, the most hopeful change over these past nine years. I do think, you know, the problem is that even though the philosophy is there and people don't scoff, and palliative care anymore. They used to call us like the death squad. I mean, crazy things. We, we are. Compl- I mean, I'm sometimes more aggressive than a palliative care doctor. Yeah, I have to. I have to interject lives. here because people don't know yeah. you are a Stanford educated, Case Western medical degree, palliative care and ICU doc. So you started in That's intensive right. care, and when you added palliative care, they called you a traitor because how dare you One just person- make people comfortable? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were so wedded to this philosophy of pedal to the metal medicine because what happens when you're in the intensive care unit with real suffering and real confusion and uncertainty, which is what medicine is, right? And patients' bodies don't do what we think they're going to do. It's easy and comforting to just cling to a protocol and to kind of shut your eyes to the suffering and just keep doing things to the patient. And so people didn't like this this sort of dis- discomfort with struggling and acknowledging uncertainty and acknowledging pain and suffering and questioning and being curious and changes over time of preferences. And so it was really hard in the first few years of palliative care, uh, especially as an ICU doctor, people did see me as a traitor. I think that's a conflict of interest. When in fact, it made me such a better doctor and such a more, in, in many cases, aggressive doctor. Yeah, I think you're, you're, yeah, well, I know this. I mean, one of the things you said to me, and, and we go back a long way, um, you mm-hmm. said one of the hard things about this concept of managing end of life in a way where you may not use every possible medical intervention to provi- to prolong <clears throat> bodily functions, essentially. You said that it's, it's a lot of work. You have to meet with the family. You have to set up the chairs. Someone has to remember mm-hmm. to bring the Kleenex. And then mm-hmm. the doctor has to show up and admit that she or he doesn't have all the answers. And and all right. of those things are, are hard. Um, has it gotten any easier? Well... I spent a career struggling and writing books and struggling with all of the the, the shame of not knowing everything because we don't know everything. In fact, it's funny, Terry, that you bring this up because right now 
at my nonprofit, Real Medicine Media, R-E-E-L, Real Medicine Media. We are working on a module that we are going to be bringing into our, our first module that we're going to be bringing in to teach pulmonary and critical care doctors. And it's about uncertainty. It's about managing our discomfort with uncertainty. And I think, we're, you know, we're starting as a, as a community to understand that we're not gods. It's hard, but we're not gods. And that we don't know everything and that we need to be able to disclose that. Sometimes to our patients, sometimes not, depending on what the patient's preferences are about that. Some patients don't want their doctors to acknowledge uncertainty. And you have to take a different tact. In terms I don't know of anybody them. like that. I don't know anybody <laughs> who wants a doctor to pretend they know everything all the time. That really, there are you such know, people. People are people are different. There's, and that's why we have to have a real sensitivity to our patients and what they, how they want information delivered, and how they want us to talk to them. So we, as palliative care doctors, we spend a lot of time trying to understand that. What is your communication preference before we even get into communicating? But they, I mean, this is it's complex, and I think there's more of an acceptance in the medical profession. But we're still really we still got a long way to go, and a lot of I know this because I have so many friends and families, as you know, who. Come Come to me every week, probably two or three people are having some end of life issue and I'm called in and I can't get over the most intelligent, educated people uh, who don't know anything about what's happening and are completely in the dark and their healthcare teams really aren't doing justice by them, unfortunately. That's another favorite thing of of yours that I, I love is that you feel that at the same point that kids get sex education in school, they should also get yeah. death education so they understand what's involved in actually right. a body shutting down and uh, and other things like that. So with all of this, as as you look at Illinois considering a medically assisted end of life um, bill, now that it's been all these years, do you think that they are a good idea? I think that they are. I'm more comfortable with them than I was. And I will tell you, you know, in the beginning, when people started talking about even removing breathing tubes, this was in the 1980s. Before that, people never would remove a breathing tube. We wouldn't talk about it. And at first, people were very, very uncomfortable with that. They said, I don't do that as a doctor. I'm supposed to keep life going. And it just, you know, people start to realize some people don't want that breathing tube in anymore. Some people want to die. They want you to take that breathing tube out. And now we have no problem taking breathing tubes out if families are clear and if patients are clear. And it's the same thing with the End of Life Option Act. At first, I, and in my article, I write how uncomfortable I was as a doctor, an ICU doctor, even thinking about people saying, I want you to help me end my life. And I mean, just anathema to my training and to my whole philosophy of care. But as time has gone on and I've seen that there are some types of suffering that we cannot remit with the best palliative care. Most times we can. With, with good palliative care, most patients can be made comfortable. But there are some situations where people are living with suffering, but it's just too much for them. Okay, we're going to leave it there. I'm going to refer everybody to just look up your name, Dr. Jessica Nudick-Zitter, and learn about all the great work she's doing. And thank you so much. I appreciate your time. It is great to talk to you. Just about two minutes before five o'clock. Patty Vasquez on the way in. Joan comes back tomorrow. It has been my pleasure to be with you on WCPT because we are live, local, and progressive.